Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Interlinked, an initiative under the Center for New Economic Studies at OP Jindal Global University. Interlinked aims to hold nuanced conversations on the interdisciplinary nature of the problems plaguing the world today. As we hold conversations on the socio-political climate, we want to break down these intellectual barriers and look at topics in a way that will allow us to question them from several facets. If you are listening to us for the first time, do take a look at our previous work. In the light of the ongoing conflict in the northeastern state of Manipur, Interlinked has collaborated with an independent research team that is working closely on the crisis unfolding in Manipur. The collaboration is aimed towards producing a podcast series called The Unraveling of the Conflict. In this series of podcasts, we wish to explore conflict resolution and peace building through different lenses through intriguing conversations with scholars from diverse disciplines. In today's episode, the team is trying to look at conflict from a political sociological lens with a specific focus on Northeast India. The talk would aim to explore the themes of majoritarianism, state power, and border. We are very proud to host Dr. Rolua Puya, who is an assistant professor at the Indian Institute of Technology, Roorkee. His research interests broadly concern identity, nationalism, development, and, and borderland studies. Thank you so much for joining us today, sir. It is my pleasure. Um, so, sir, to start us off with the first question, in your article, Border Nation, Indigenous Peoples, States, and the border in Indo-Myanmar borderlands, you highlight that borders are not homogeneous spaces and are therefore interpreted differently by, dif by various social actors. While the central state holds the border to be static to maintain the sovereignty of nation states, borderland communities often perceive the borders as flexible, attached to the memories and ethnicities of the local populations. How do such contesting perceptions and understanding of the border make certain areas prone to conflict? Uh, well, uh, before uh, responding to that, I just uh, wanted to uh, express my gratitude to Center for Economic New Economic Studies at Jindal and to uh, Samrat Ney for uh, coordinating it very well. So <clears throat> I think it is a very uh, important, uh, uh, I mean, it is very welcoming that, you know, the uh, Center for New Economic Studies has taken a very you know, important uh, initiative. So, uh, and also, you know, for giving me this opportunity to express, you know, my thoughts uh, on some of the issues that I have been working on for the past several years. Now to come to, you know, the question. Uh, so there are two ways of uh, looking at it. Uh, one is uh, in terms of how borders have uh, emerged as a line to delimit the sovereignty of the nation state or in short, we can call the state the, the state perception of border. And on the other hand is what we have, the people's perception of the border. Now, in terms of the state perception of the border, uh, this thinking can be traced uh, to the Treaty of Westphalia, which established the principle of territorial control and mutual recognition of authority, uh, which also means that, you know, borders begin to uh, designate or demarcate new, new zones of territorial sovereignty. Now, 
the contesting perception lies in terms of how people relate to the border and the way in which they relate and perceive or conceive the border is not necessarily the way in which you know the state construct and perceive the border. Now, for example, if one talks about uh, the context of the Northeast, uh, the borders are very, very recent. Uh, for example, in the Indomimia borderlands, it was a mere administrative borders and uh, it was only in 1967 that you know the borders between India and Myanmar was formalized uh, by an agreement between the two countries. Now, for many communities in the Northeast, the borders has become a line that divides them. So we see that you know over the past uh, 60 to 70 years, we see that you know there has been a lot of resentments against uh, borders, which are expressed in terms of social political movements and the drawing of the borders by state whether it is the colonial state or the post-colonial state, in many ways has ignored the ethnic realities of the communities. Now you see that, you know, Nagas are being divided, you know, across borders in India and Myanmar, within India also. Likewise, several other communities in the North is like the Garros or the Mizos are also, you know, divided. So one understanding is that, you know, borders are contesting because uh, they, are large, they are also largely a legacy of colonial rule and uh, the drawing of these borders has largely upset ethnic relations, dividing communities into multiple geographical zones. And even in post-colonial period, despite the fact that the, the region has seen numerous uh, cartographic surgeries in terms of uh, reorganization of the regions, but uh, the reorganization of the Northeast has already has ended up only affirming the administrative borders that were being drawn by the colonial state. And in many ways, this, this, this you know, explain the past and present interstate border conflict across the region, whether it is between Assam or Nagaland, Assam Mizoram, Assam Arunachal Pradesh, Assam and Magalaya. Okay, yes, sir, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much. Um, it's very interesting how you pointed out that borders are nothing but post-colonial legacies and that um, the borders have, continue to ignore the ethnic realities of the people living on ground uh, or the people in the, uh, the communities in the borderlands and how that has indeed um, you know led to a lot of socio-political movements on ground so it's very interesting um, to look at borders as post-colonial legacies so uh, moving at moving on to the next question you mentioned the waga syndrome a phrase used by van skendel in one of your articles Conflicts are marked by aggressive territoriality and the other is often seen as the enemy. What role does the state play in fueling the Waga syndrome and exclusivism? Uh, I think uh, it is uh, very uh, important. And yes, I have drawn this idea from the work of uh, William Van Schender, uh, who is uh, one of the uh, pioneers, uh, a very tall figure when it comes to uh, borderland studies in South Asia or, you know, uh, in Asia. So uh, part of, you know, this uh, part of the explanation of uh, the Waga syndrome has to do with what I have said before, in a sense that states, you know, perceive borders as a line that delimit the sovereignty of the nation state. Now, beyond that, uh, the Waga syndrome also has to do with geopolitics in terms of diplomatic relations between countries and the kind of history they share. But then uh, 
a more sociological, a more socio-anthropological kind of understanding or explanation would be that uh, what is evident is, you know, that borders are used to divide or used as a source of distinction between us and them. For example, us and them in terms of citizens and non-citizens, us and them in terms of legal and illegals, uh, which is often mobilized to target uh, the other population. Now, this is something which is uh, increasingly evident across the globe, which also explains the kind of anti-migrant, anti-refugee rhetoric that we are seeing in the contemporary world today. So uh, in many ways, border implant a kind of exclusiveness uh, in the consciousness of the people. And in many ways, uh, it has been politically mobilized uh, over the years. And we are seeing how this political mobilization is uh, becoming something which is pervasive you know, across the world. So let me put it in that way. Um, okay, yeah, actually it makes a lot of sense and it's very interesting how you said, uh, how you basically spoke about borders as um, nothing but a distinction between us and them and how it is often used in the anti-refugee um, anti connotations that are used. So um, I think this sets the ground for me to move on to the next question. The Act East policy or the AAP is aimed towards the liberalization of the northeastern borderlands with the shift from a nationalistic approach to economic imperatives. An important part of the AAP is to focus on trade relations. How do you think the intrastate conflicts in the northeastern states have consequences on the AAP's trade relations with neighboring East Asian countries? Uh, well, the the impact of you know conflict you 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 mentioned Manipur right in in, in the question if uh, I hear you correctly no no this is uh, just northeast in general yes okay northeast in general yeah. okay yeah. so I think the uh, uh, the impact of any kind of conflict or uh, any kind of you know uh, a political crisis in the northeast uh, definitely will have you know uh, an impact in terms of how neighboring countries, uh, you know, I'm referring to the East Asian countries, will view the problem and what is their own assessment about it. Because when it, because talking about uh, the A, the AEP essentially is about opening up borders, fostering people to people connections, and enhancing trade relations through uh, through you know uh, setting up of you know different you know, industries uh, or border hearts. Or you know, uh, or trying to uh, bridge you know a lot of uh, economic uh, gaps that has been happening in this part of the world. Now, uh, in many ways, also you know, uh, I think the economic impact of uh, the economic impact of conflict is you know widely being felt across the region, and I see that you know. Uh, uh, in 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 the longer run, I think the the, the ramifications of the conflict, you know, will be will be felt for years to come. And in many ways, I think it has, you know, it is quite debatable. You know, I mean, to be honest, it is quite debatable in a sense that whether peace will assert development or whether development will assert, you know, peace. So, but the feeling is that you know, when one talks about development and opening of borders, you need to have you know a kind of political stability. You need to have you know a conducive environment for you know, say for example, investment. You need to build confidence and trust in across people, not only between countries and countries. 
So I think, you know, uh, for that to happen, political stability in the Northeast, you know, probably I think is uh, one of the first steps that is required. As of now, we, you know, uh, as of now, I think uh, there are potentials, you know, uh, that, that is visible in states like uh, Mizoram, for example. So, uh, but at, at the wider, you know, at the regional level, I think, you know, it will take, uh, you know, some several more years and commitment to really see the ECIS policy taking off. Yes, sir. Um, you rightly pointed out that the conflicts in Northeast will automatically have impacts on the East Asian countries and will lead to economic ramifications and crisis. And uh, to boost the relations, in uh, basically the trade relations between India and the East Asian countries, a political stability, especially in Northeast India, is very necessary. So uh, moving on to the next question. In your article, Media and Conflict or Conflict in Media, you mentioned stealth conflict or how Northeast India's problems in terms of conflict and violence remain hidden from the dominant Indian, uh, Indian society. Why do you think that is the case? Uh, well, uh, one is uh, largely because Northeast India suffers from multiple you know, marginalities and in the dominant discourse, what is being largely talked about and focused is, for example, the political marginalities that people from the Northeast region are, you know, experiencing, uh, are feeling, you know, alienated, or, you know, they are underrepresented politically, they don't have a political voice in the mainstream political discourse. And likewise, you know, marginalities, issues of marginalities are often linked to questions of development or underdevelopment. Issues of marginalities are linked to, you know, the kind of uh, 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 social, you know, the kind of, you know, uh, marginalities that people experience on the basis of their identity, for example. But rarely uh, we think about marginality in relation to media or what, you know, some scholars would call media marginality. And I call this, you know, still conflict largely because much of you know the kind of socio-political uh, discourse that uh, that is being uh, that that is happening in the northeast uh, remain largely hidden for a very very long time, and except for you know independent journalists who have you know played a very significant role, I think you know by and large the mainstream media outlet has also you know treated uh, northeast as a kind of you know geographical uh, uh, as a kind of distant periphery. So uh, it also means that, you know, uh, the larger mainstream media are quite unbothered about what about the everyday events that is happening until and unless, you know, we have some kind of uh, political crisis that is, you know, uh, uh, that demands, you know, political attention, then by and large, the issue of the Northeast, you know, remain largely hidden. That is one. The other is that, you know, there has been a lot of uh, media misrepresentation that is happening about the region. And I think, you know, this is something which uh, people from the region continue to face even today. So uh, my intention was to, you know, uh, bring in that, you know, the kind of experience of marginality is not only about social, political, economic marginality, but it, 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 it is also linked and tied up to questions of representation where uh, the media has, you know, played a very, very significant role in terms of uh, representing or not representing, you know, uh, issues related to the Northeast. 
Um, yes, sir. Thank you so much. It's very interesting how you pointed out and how you highlighted um, the Northeast being treated as a distant periphery uh, for the mainstream media discourse and also how media has often been misrepresenting a lot of uh, the on-ground realities of the Northeast India. Um, moving forward to the next question, in multiple cases, it has been witnessed that the state governments hold an attitude of antipathy towards the tribal concerns. Do you think it is practically possible on the part of government to maintain a neutral position given that they benefit, especially in terms of vote banks from majoritarianism? And how do you think that the state government should rethink its policy towards the tribal minorities instead of only appeasing the ethnic majority? Uh, well, I for you know to respond to this question, I think one has to you know go back a little further in terms of the early years of uh, post-independent India. So much of today's Northeast was you know part of the undivided Assam, and beyond that there was only two princely states, right, Manipur and Tripura. Now today, uh, it was largely you know to, uh, the state of Mizoram, Meghalaya. Uh, who have, you know, expressed, you know, their resentments against the powers that were conferred under the Sikh Sadhu. Now, it means that, you know, tribals at, from the dawn of India's independence have, uh, some tribal communities have and have been granted certain uh, level of autonomy. Now, but uh, that was not the case. And for those communities, you know, who have uh, struggled and achieved statehood, now we see that, you know, tribals have become the you know politically dominant in such states such as Mizoram again you know Nagaland and Meghalaya. Now coming to the more contemporary issue, I think you know tribe the tribal condition in uh, say Tripura Manipur is you know uh, when it comes to political representation, when it comes to you know uh, question of human rights, I think you know that that you know there is still a long way to go. So in this sense, you know, uh, the state government, you know, has you know, a lot of role to play in terms of uh, building trust and cooperation between, between tribals and the non-tribals. Now, <clears throat> uh, Manipur, you know, has uh, a very large tribal population, but then, you know, it is uh, the tribals in Manipur don't enjoy, you know, any kind of uh, real autonomy, be it the Sikh Sadhu or, you know, any, any kind of uh, substan substantial autonomy. So in that way, I think the state government has to play, you know, a proactive role in terms of, uh, in in terms of you know granting political rights of the tribal communities and ensuring that you know uh, tribals are you know politically or equally represented. So in many ways, you know, it is you know uh, how you know the state government also hand handles you know the tribal issues in the northeast. So I feel that. Uh, Yes, you know, vote bank politics do play a role, but then, uh, uh, but then, you know, given the kind of ethnic tensions and issues that we have, I think what is important is to really give, uh, to really give and ensure, you know, that uh, tribals, you know, are given or granted, you know, some kind of, you know, autonomy that will enable uh, you know, them to express and articulate their political aspirations and also uh, you know, uh, uh, satisfy or, you know, uh, also meet, you know, the kind of uh, developmental aspirations that they have. Yes, sir. Um, you rightly pointed out that the state governments, especially in Northeast India, have a big role and 
should play a proactive role in taking up the responsibility for uh, the equal representation and autonomy and ensuring autonomy for the tribal minorities um and so basically you also pointed out how to understand the contemporary situation it's also very necessary to uh, lay out the historical narrative and also to have an understanding of the chronology um so thank you so much for doing this with us today it was very enlightening considering that you highlighted how conflicts in the northeastern states should not be oversimplified and should be should be looked at from a lens of its complicated and dynamic history and ethnicity thank you so much for doing this with us today thank you so much it is uh, it is a pleasure to, to have this uh, conversation